This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who just loves Sally Yates' accent. But in my spare time, I talk tech, and you're listening to Recode Decode from the Vox Media Podcast Network. All right, I'm done with that Southern accent. Actually, my family is from the South, so I listen to them all the time. So that's what the Swishers of the South sound like. Anyway, today we're going to play an interview I conducted with Sally Yates, who's from Georgia, the former Deputy Attorney General of the United States. And I am a super fan of hers. After Donald Trump's inauguration in 2017, she served as acting attorney general for just 10 days before being dismissed over her opposition to the first travel ban. Go Sally. She and I spoke before the midterms at the All Rays Summit in San Francisco. Let's take a listen. Please welcome to the stage, executive editor of Recode, Kara Swisher. going to take off my sunglasses for Sally Yates. All right, I got to say, I spent Halloween night with Elon Musk, which was something else. But I, the only thing I was thinking about the entire time he was talking was Sally Yates. So I am so... I mean, he's fine with his rockets and crap. But this woman, I don't admire almost anybody. Um, and it's true, it really is. I can't actually think of anybody at this moment, except for Sally Yates. What she has done and what she did to stand up and tell the truth and do her job and be a badass is something that really inspires me. And I'm super excited. I'm going to try not to gush. I won't, actually. I'm going to ask her some tough questions. But um, she is exactly the kind of person we should all want to be and behave in life. And so, Sally, come on up. <laughs> Sit down. So, um, so I interview a lot of people. I do, and I just uh, I want to talk about a lot of things. But you are aware of what always is, correct? What's going on here? Yeah. Right. Cool. Generally, I mean, it's a different world than the world that I've spent like the last thirty years in. But yeah. yeah. So yeah. I mean, I was so inspired. Yeah. By what I just saw. She was yeah. interesting. She's like. Wait a minute. Like, was sitting there, watching yeah, these women yeah. present just a second ago was kind of interesting. Yeah. So let's just get into it. Um, let's, yeah, I assume you all know what Sally has done and what she does. So why don't you give us an update of what you've been doing since you left the Justice Department? Yeah. So I actually had a gift I think a lot of people at my stage of my career don't have. And that was a chance to be able to make an affirmative decision about mm -hmm. what I wanted to do. You know, a right. lot of times you just kind of keep doing what you're doing or you move to the next step in the same progression. But when I left DOJ, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. So mm -hmm. I spent a year visiting at Georgetown Law School, which I really loved. I mean, the students there are so plugged into what's going on in the world, mm -hmm. and that was great. And I was traveling and doing a lot of speaking and writing. Um, I realized something, and that's what... I missed being a lawyer. I'm mm -hmm. really not an academic. Right. I'm more of a real world kind of person, mm -hmm. and I missed that. But I also didn't want to just be a lawyer because there are too many things out there that I really care about and want to s still be able to try to have some impact. Yeah, so we'll I'm, talk about you running for president later. But no. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> you should, but we'll discuss that. Yeah. I'm not liking your answer. Um, so, so you, so you went, so you got back into doing. So I law. got back into practicing law. So. Had you, had you, you'd been in the Justice Department for how long? Eight, Twenty-seven years. Twenty. So you went yeah. right from law school, or was no, there? I practiced at King and Spaulding, a firm <laughs> that was originally started in Atlanta. Um, Griffin Bell, who had been the Attorney General in the Carter administration, um, started the practice there. Um, an investigative practice. They call it special matters. Our clients don't have criminal problems. They have special problems. Right. Um, and, and so um, I was there for three years right. and went to the Justice Department, went to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Atlanta, thinking I was going to stay a couple of years and go back to the firm. Right. And 27 now, I'm, years I am later, discerning I a Southern accent that you have. Yeah. Um, but you, so you decided to go into Justice Department from private practice. Why yeah. did you do that? I, what was the impetus to do that? You know, at the time, I didn't go for the right reasons. Um, in fact, I wouldn't have hired myself later mm -hmm. um, if, if I had been honest about the reasons. I went because I wanted more hands-on experience. I wanted to try cases on my own. You know, in big law firms, they're you know, usually staffed with you know, a dozen yeah. people. Yeah, and you move up. Yeah, but that's not a sufficient reason to go to DOJ. And that's why mm -hmm. I would never hire anybody who offered that as the reason later. Right. Because you know, at the risk of sounding kind of corny about this, I mean, the immense responsibility you have at the Department of Justice of representing the people of the United States. I mean, mm -hmm. you're not just like a regular old lawyer. I mean, you're, mm -hmm. you are responsible for seeking justice and yeah. for equal justice in this yeah, country. Yeah, that's why we're sick to our stomach right now with the little elf who's running it, but go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so. And so when I got there, I was really totally unprepared mm -hmm. for how completely captivated is the wrong word. It doesn't denote really the seriousness of it, but how totally taken I would be with so the mission. What, you know, for, we're talking a lot about, they just get a presentation about the different things that you need to do. What were you like as a young lawyer? I mean, were you aggressive? Were you, it was a different world. You're yeah. talking about the Carter administration. Oh yeah, I mean, it was a very different world. Look, it was the late 80s mm -hmm. when I started at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Atlanta. Um, I wanted to go into the organized crime section. Oh, um, okay. But they wouldn't put me in that section. The first assistant, which was like the top career person there, thought that it was kind of too rough and tumble for a woman mm -hmm. um, to go into organized crime. Yeah, I know, I know, that's right. so patronizing. Right. Um, but at the time, and so he put me in the white collar section, okay. which, because he thought, yeah, that I, I wouldn't be tough and enough. And what, did to you do anything about it? Did you? Did you know, you know, at the time, well, and I hate to admit, I mean, I, I think I was plenty tough to handle mm -hmm. um, organized crime. They're also stupid also, but go ahead. They seem like, when I re listen to all the coverage of them, they, they seem dumb. Yeah, as, a, the, as a group of criminals. Which actually is kind of why yeah. I liked fraud better. Right, okay. Because it was more challenging. That right, in better white criminals. White-collar work, yeah, actually, it's, it's better crime. Um, you, it's not about whether they did it. It's not like if they, you know, it's like somebody goes into a bank and robs a bank, like what they were thinking at the time is pretty irrelevant. Right, In right. the white-collar area, the whole thing you're trying to figure out was what were they thinking? What was their intent at the right. time? Right. And I found that really challenging and right. interesting, and I liked it. So what were you like as a lawyer then? So if they didn't let you do this, you didn't object, you just did? Well, no, I mean, I, I suppose, you know, there were, weren't very many women on the criminal side. Mm -hmm. I suppose I was a, a, a tad um, aggressive, mm -hmm. um, which mm -hmm. I learned with one of the <laughs> one of the U.S. attorneys there. Yeah. Um, I remember going to a meeting, and before we walked into this meeting, the U.S. attorney looked at me and said, "You know, I really think that the agency would appreciate a more demure woman." Right. Can you? I mean, demure. You would never use that. So I just kind of nodded, and he didn't get a more demure woman. Okay. All right. Um, in response so, to so that. you rose your you rose the ranks of the Justice yeah. Department and moved into very high ranking position, mm -hmm. and through all these administrations. So it was Carter. Yeah, no, it wasn't in the Carter administration. Yeah, no, but, but, not that no, old, but no, no, but it, was, it goes back. There yeah, were lots of administrations. Yeah. So you served in both. My point being, in Republican and Democratic. Right. Right. And you felt good about that job until recently. Correct. Yeah, I mean, until the Obama administration, I was a career civil servant. And so mm -hmm. that means, you know, you stay right. regardless of administrations. And like 99.9% .9 of the people at the Department of Justice are career. But when President Obama came into office, I was appointed 
to be the U.S. attorney in Atlanta, which is a political appointment, right. which means you leave with the administration you as well. You leave the administration. Yeah. And then move to the Justice Department, correct? Yeah, right. last two years as the deputy attorney general, which is the number two spot. The number two spot. Mm -hmm. What did you think when you got that job? I and mean, talk a little bit about getting that position. You got that at the end of the Obama administration? Yeah, right. last two years. Right. Um, and I had spent a lot of time in D.C. I was on what's called the Attorney General's Advisory Committee. It's a group of about 15 U.S. attorneys from around the country mm -hmm. that are plugged in and involved in shaping policy for the department. So I'd been doing that for the six years prior to that. Um, I got to know Eric Holder very well. Mm -hmm. He a, a, was a great mentor and a good friend of mine. Um, and I really liked that work. I liked being able to have an impact on something broader than an individual case or even a single office. Right. And really believe in the things you worked on were, was the broad swath of things the Justice Department was doing. And the yeah. Obama administration was very aggressive on a, a number of issues, especially Eric Holder was. Right, uh, right. Know. And that, look, the DOJ, it's 130,000 employees. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a big department. Right. It's not just U.S. attorneys and litigating components, it's all the agencies, FBI and DEA and ATF and the Marshal Service and the Federal Bureau right. of Prisons. So it's a lot of stuff. And then there's the whole national security side as well that you are working with counterparts, you know, CIA and NSA and others right. there. So, I mean, it's a really broad portfolio, which mm -hmm. I loved because that's mm -hmm. part of what made it so interesting mm -hmm. and challenging. And so you worked on all of that versus an individual thing, correct? Yeah, yeah. I worked so, on all so of that in the last fast years. forward to the Trump administration. You were realizing what was going on, and it had been known in the Obama administration, some of this stuff. You all were working on this. I know you can't talk about every part of it, yeah. but you felt it was your duty to bring it up and to make noise about it, correct? Yeah, and you're talking about the Mike Flynn stuff Yes, now? exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, the the investigation into Russian interference in the election, yes, had started back during mm -hmm. the Obama administration. And, you know, God, this seems like a lifetime ago yeah. when we talk yeah. about this. It really does, but... Yeah, um, today is birthright thing. Go ahead. Oh, God, don't even today. get me Tomorrow started. will probably on, be, yeah, I don't know, what on, the hell. That. Um, let's just get to the midterms. All right, okay. <laughs> but... At the time, um, d during the transition administrations, it became a big thing whether Mike Flynn was essentially telling the Russians not to worry about the sanctions that the Obama administration was imposing um, based on their interference in the election. And um, as I said, it seems like a lifetime ago, you may not remember, but, but nobody could really figure out why the Russians weren't reacting when we imposed the sanctions that we did. Mm -hmm. And we discovered um, through some recordings that we had access to mm -hmm. that Flynn... I like how you say that. Some recordings we had access to. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to have some recordings I have access to. <laughs> yeah. um, that's kind of all I can say. Okay, all right. <laughs> I'm getting what happened. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> that, that in fact he had been talking to the Russian ambassador, and then you know to, to sort of say colloquially, kind of tell him, "Don't worry about this. We'll mm -hmm. take care of it." And then this is all in the lead up as um, Trump is about to take office. Then this becomes a thing, and they start asking the Trump administration about it. And they start falsely saying, no, there was no discussion with the Russian ambassador right. about it. And they start getting more and more specific. And the vice president even goes out and says, I talked to General Flynn, and he told me that yeah. they talked about Christmas greetings and right. down the plane and all sorts of other stuff, and just sort of forgetting that you know, sanctions thing. Right. Um, so yeah, they, we then hit the point where it was clear they weren't going to stop lying about it or, or providing false information about it that it was unclear who knew at the White House that this was false. But one thing we did know was that we weren't the only ones who knew that he'd been having these discussions with the Russian ambassador. The Russians obviously knew it as well. Right. And he'd been out publicly providing false information about it, which creates a, a potential compromise. Right. And yeah. you really don't want your national security advisor compromised with the Russians. Yeah. It's not a good way to start. No. Yeah. Yeah. I even know that. Yeah. So, um, so you, so you do this. You go talk about like sort of what it takes to go and do, and do something about that because in normal administrations. It would be like, oh my God, the Russians are invaded, uh, yeah. and we have to do something. But what was the calculation from your part from being in this kind of dicey position? Um, well, it wasn't what I anticipated. I mean, mm -hmm. I can tell you. I mean, when I agreed to stay on as acting AG, which is a tradition for the number two to stay mm -hmm. until the new attorney general is um, is confirmed, 
Um, there's this other tradition, and that is that nothing happens during that time. Right. And right. that you can just sort of stay the course, you keep right. the trains running. My chief of staff actually told me it would be so quiet, there would be time for a lot of long, boozy lunches. Right, right. And um, we were hoping for long, boozy that time. lunches. Yeah, so yeah. I had those later, but you know, right. just yeah. not, during, yeah. not during that time. Right. Um, so it wasn't what I expected, but on the other hand, I mean, you couldn't ignore um, the gravity of this situation. Yeah. And you've got a brand new administration. Again, you don't know who knows what, but you know you can't sit on this information. Right. That, For one thing, I'm assuming that the vice president didn't know he's out there telling the American people something that is demonstrably untrue. Right. So from that standpoint, he should know that that right. information is inaccurate. The president and others should know that their national security advisor, if he's lying to them, they should know that. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't have that guy sitting there right. compromised with, with the Russians. National security and so clearance. it's not what I had in mind in right. terms of what that time was going to be like. But so what else would you do? So talk about what doing making that decision. Because in Washington, they make all kinds of political calculations where they don't. They, you know, they, they don't. They shove it under the thing or they don't do something about it. Talk a little bit about what you were going through your head. Um, well, look, look I, we talked about it internally with the different national security agencies. So, um, you know, I talked to CIA because I wanted to get a sense from particularly the people at the agency who deal with this stuff every day, is this actually the kind of stuff the Russians would use? Mm -hmm. I didn't consider myself to be, you know, An the expert. world's expert on that. I wanted to get the expert view on that, and they confirmed to me it's exactly the kind of stuff that they mm -hmm. would use, either overtly or more subtly. Mm -hmm. And so we had discussions. I can't really sort of reveal those in terms mm -hmm. of how the short straw came to me right. um, to be the one. But there you are. So, But there I am. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Um, Did you expect the reaction you got, including being removed? Um, well, there were, you know, there was that travel ban thing that also yeah. kind of yes, came I know in there. That. We'll get to that. I'm going to get to that. But the um, reaction, it set it up. I, you know what I expected? I expected that they would do something about it. Right. When we right. went over there and told them, I mean, I call up the White House counsel, tell him I've got something. Don McGahn. Vital, Don McGahn, vitally important. I need to talk to him about right away, and it can't be on the phone. Right. So. That's kind of a big thing. Right, yeah. For the acting attorney general to call the White House counsel and say, I need to come see you right away. Right. And we need to talk about this in a skip, in a, in a right. secure place. What do you say? I'm having a long, boozy lunch? What? Yeah. <laughs> so I did. So I went yeah. over there. I mean, he, he saw me immediately, you know, told him what was going on, went back the next day to answer some of his questions about it. And then the travel ban happens um, over the course of the weekend. Actually, it was the Friday afternoon that I had gone back um, to have the second session with McGahn about the Mike Flynn situation is Friday when afternoon. I learned about yeah. the travel ban. So then there's the weekend and then the Monday that I issued the directive and then I'm fired Monday night. Mm -hmm. And then nothing happens to Mike Flynn for mm -hmm. a couple of weeks, quite some time mm -hmm. after that, mm -hmm. until a story broke in the post about it. How did you decide what to do around the directive? Just you couldn't do it? You couldn't... No, it was, um, it, it, was, it was more than that. Um, and we're now talking about, you know, this was travel ban one. We're on 3.0 now. Right. And so, again, seems like a lifetime ago. Um, the travel ban I made my decision on actually applied to people who had valid visas and people who had um, valid green cards who were lawful right. permanent residents in the country. We had some people who were literally mid-flight when the president signed the first travel ban and who could not get back into the country mm -hmm. because, they, because of, of his executive order. And so um, I learned about this Friday night from my principal deputy reading about it in the New York Times. Oh, all right. Um, not exactly the ideal way to find out about something like this. I'm that literally you have um, to, that you yeah, have to Yeah, I've got to have out. people in court the next right. morning defending it because um, you know, actions are being filed all over the country um, uh, for different individuals who are trying to get back into the country. So we grapple with it all weekend, trying to figure out from the White House what they're trying to do and who's in and who's out, and bring everybody in Monday morning and have a long discussion with the Trump appointees and the career people about, all right, here are all the challenges. What are our responses to these things? And, you know, the Department of Justice is this incredibly hierarchical organization. Normally, for something of this import, mm -hmm. you know, lots of layers below have worked this all up. And there have been lots of memos done, and it's all distilled. There was no time for 
any of that stuff. It's literally 72 hours from when I first find out about it to when I'm told we've got a DOJ has to take a position on the constitutionality of the travel ban in court Tuesday morning. We've got to take a position as to whether it's constitutional or not. And talking it through, and I can't sort of reveal what those discussions were, but it was really clear to me that I wasn't convinced it was lawful or constitutional. And beyond that, and importantly, to defend it, it also became evident I was going to have to send Department of Justice lawyers in to argue that this travel ban had absolutely nothing to do with religion. Religion was completely irrelevant. Right. And that's in the face of all the statements the president had made, both on the campaign trail and after he had been elected. And I didn't believe that that was a defense that was grounded in truth. And uh -huh. we were the Department of Justice. And I don't think any lawyer should go in and be arguing something that's not grounded in truth, but I sure don't think the Department of Justice should be doing that, and right. certainly not on something. So the reason I wanted you to talk about this and tell this story uh, for people who aren't, I think most of us are familiar with it, what is it about you that made you do that? Because not everybody does. I'm telling you, they do. They will argue it. They will yeah. go through it. And, and lawyers did. Yeah. Um, look, I... I loved the Department of Justice. I mean, I felt privileged every single day to be part of that institution. I believed in the mission. Um, I believed in our responsibility. I had experienced firsthand how it felt for people in the community to count on us mm -hmm. to be the ones who were administering justice. And so I'd spent nearly 30 years doing that. Um, so I had a really strong feeling um, and a really strong commitment to what I believe that institution is supposed to stand for. And, you know, I'll be damned if I'm just going to abandon all that at mm -hmm. the end and say that none of that matters when that's actually all that matters mm -hmm. is, is what that institution is supposed to stand for. So, um, so you I expect it, did you expect to get fired? You did. I thought there was a really good chance. Um, <laughs> I mean, although I won't, you know, and this may be so just incredibly naive on my part. He um, will suddenly realize he's not an idiot. And what? I, no, what? I didn't think, I, I wouldn't, I'm not that naive. Okay, but, all right. um, I did actually have some sliver of hope that this would give them pause. Mm -hmm. You know, they ultimately did abandon travel ban one. Um, right after several courts struck it down. But I did have some hope that this would give them some pause and they would actually have a process now. And you, know, you would get input from agencies and right. the department and others. Yeah. So there was some part of me that thought, you know, maybe that'll happen. But I recognized that there was, there was a good chance I was gonna get fired. I didn't really want to right. get fired. I mean, I had spent nearly 30 yeah. years yeah. at DOJ. So you didn't want to get fired. That's not exactly how I wanted to, you know, put the period on the service there. Yeah. Um, getting but anything it's kind else. Of a good way to get fired. Come yeah, on. But God, I gotta tell you, 72 yeah. hours, 72 days. I would do right. the exact same thing all right. over again. And right. to have done anything else would have yeah. felt like a betrayal. Yeah. So afterwards, so what do you assess now as you're watching, watching what's going on with the investigations and things like that? Um, look, it's a, there are lots of policy issues with which I disagree with this administration. I mean, yeah. we, we don't have long enough um, to go through all of those. Yeah. But that's actually not the thing that worries me the most. Because mm -hmm. um, policy is policy. Policy, you know, elections have consequences. I hate to say it, you have to expect that there are going to be policy decisions with mm -hmm. which you disagree. But what is really damaging is the rule of law in our country only works if decisions are made at the Department of Justice based on the facts and the law and nothing else. And at least since Watergate, both Republican and Democratic administrations have recognized that not only for it to work that way, but for the public to have confidence that it's working that way there's really an impenetrable wall between the White House and the department on cases and investigations. You talk about broad policy kind of mm -hmm. things, but cases and investigations. Right. From the very beginning, you've seen this president um, not only disrespecting that, but repeatedly trying to reach in to DOJ to you know, gin up an investigation of his former political rival or to you know, even things, I know Joe Arpaio seems like so yesterday, but mm -hmm. think about, 
You know, he actually, the president actually called the Attorney General of the United States to try to get him to drop the criminal investigation of Joe Arpaio. I mean, that's just one right. small example. Right. What I worry about more than any of the litany of policy differences is the loss and the normalization of that kind of breakdown of the rule of law and what that means for future administrations and what it means for the public's confidence. So what does that mean? And what? Well, you know, right now he's reaching in, trying, you know, knocking at the door all the time. And I think, you know, you've seen Rod Rosenstein, for example, has, I think, done a good job of resisting with respect to the Mueller investigation. Mm -hmm. And Bob Mueller really needs to have the running room that he has to be able to get to the bottom of that. So um, it's hard to know if there's any actual impact on decisions, but you know, I know some of the folks that are still there and I mm -hmm. have confidence in them, but whether it's actually having that impact or not, um, you know, it's not even a thing anymore when the president tweets some of this stuff or says it in speeches. I mean, we just kind of move on to the next thing. It doesn't even make it full of, through a full 24-hour news cycle. Right. And, you know, if we get to the point that that's how people think our justice system works, right. um, we, at the risk of sounding melodramatic here, it, stuff starts falling apart. Right. And, and, but when you're in that justice department, when the people that are serving there who are career, what can they do? Nothing? because they have to take orders, a hierarchical system, right? Yeah, but I'm, I'm well, for one thing, it has, a, I mean, can you imagine going to work every day in a place where your president is basically calling your agency corrupt? Right. Um, I mean, every, almost every single day there's something, either at FBI or DOJ or otherwise. So that doesn't exactly give people a spring in their step No. Um, no. when it yeah. comes to, to doing their jobs. You know, I don't have any evidence, and I am hoping that it is not the case mm -hmm. that it's actually having any impact in terms of specific case decisions that are being made at the department. Again, the folks that I know that are there mm -hmm. wouldn't allow that to happen. Right. But there's, you know, there's, a, there's, there's the there's not so, so there's the subtle sort of signals that you get too that can really infect the process as well. Mm -hmm. We're going to take a quick break now for a word from our sponsors. We'll be back to this conversation with former Deputy Attorney General Sally Yates after this. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. And where do you imagine, and then I want to uh, talk a little bit about what people can do? Like, what do you do? Or how do you cope through that? And what are some of the things you get inspiration from in doing that? But where does it lead then, the Mueller investigation and everything else? Do you feel like it's going to pace? We talked yesterday about Bob Mueller. Um, yeah. You know, this recent thing where they were trying to smear him. Yeah. Which is just absurd. I mean, I, I know Bob Mueller. He's like the most straight-laced guy you'd ever meet. I was telling Carrie, he doesn't even wear colored shirts. He only wears white shirts with his suits. I mean, right. he is just the quintessential, I'll date myself, Joe Friday, just the facts, ma'am kind of right. guy. Right. Um, so, yeah, so this latest thing is just really sickening. Yeah, I didn't know uh, colored shirts were, were, uh, were compared with sexual harassment, but No, great. no, no, that's it. Um, no, I get that, but, but, <laughs> but maybe. Now I'm going to be on the cover, uh, figure out. So, so where do you imagine it going? You because know, they tried that, it didn't work. Yeah, yeah it's hard to know. Um, one of the things that they've done 
really well and exactly like you should be doing it is there are like no leaks coming out of mm -hmm. the special counsel's investigation. That's how that's supposed to be done. And so, you know, I think the press corps has been surprised just about every time when, you know, another indictment comes out or a plea comes out. You know, it's, there's a body of law out there that, that provides that a sitting president can't be indicted while he's president. Right. Um, and there's an Office of Legal Counsel decision that says that, or opinion that says that, that doesn't necessarily have the force of law, but there are a couple of routes that he could take. He could do a report um, that would go to the Deputy Attorney General, to Rod Rosenstein, mm -hmm. that Rod could then provide to Congress that would lay out what it is he's found. Um, there could be other charges of other individuals that are to come. This is my long-winded way of telling you. I don't know okay. it's going to be. Okay. All right. Yeah. I'm waiting for Roger Stone to be arrested. That's my, and then I'll end, and then I'll be happy. Um, so, where does it lead to, though? What, what happens in these kind of things? Or are we somewhere where we don't know where we are anymore? Well, I guess it sort of depends on what happens next. I mean, we already know. I mean, to a certain extent, when people talk about how. You know, if, if the president's not indicted, well, that'll prove that, you know, nothing wrong happened. This is the old quintessential boiling the frog slowly. I mean, mm -hmm. we've already learned a lot of stuff that's yeah. really troubling all yeah. along that if we had gotten all at one time, I right. think people would have been really shocked. Right. Because but it's, it's because it's out. dribbled out slowly. Again, we've kind of And it's of hard got, to understand. It is, it is hard to understand. And there's so much other stuff coming at people every day. And do you feel confident that at least some of the government agencies do have a handle on the Russians uh, now? Or is it still, that's even not getting fixed? Uh, you, you know, I think, look, I know that the agencies are working on trying to prevent the Russians from interfering in the midterms or the mm -hmm. next presidential election. They were kind of doing that on their own. There was no impetus from the president to do that, no statement from the president directing them to do that. And regardless of where you are on the Russia investigation of what happened in 2016, good grief, all of us should want you know, to ensure that we're doing everything we can right. to prevent them from doing it again. Doing it again. Yeah. All right, so. It's not a 300 pound guy so sitting on here the you are. Yeah, here you are fired, uh, but working, because you seem to have gotten a job. You can say it. I've, okay. I've gotten all right. Okay. All right. Good. Yeah, I, I think yeah. fired by Donald Trump seems to be something <laughs> I hope I can have happen to me someday. Um, why aren't you thinking of political things? You said you aren't. You said no to me. I just interviewed Hillary Clinton, and she did some sort of no that nobody was happy with. She did actually say no, but for some reason she didn't say no, no enough. But you were quite definitive. About not running. About not running for office? Yes. Yeah, that's just not something, um, look, I believe in public service, and, right. and I hope someday I may have another opportunity for public service, but public service and running for elected office are not exactly the same thing. And right. that whole process is just not anything I've ever really felt. People are interested in you. You've been approached, correct? Presumably. Folks have been, yeah, have been very nice about very that. <laughs> yeah, that is, yeah. <laughs> Why wouldn't you do it? I mean, Mark Cuban's thinking of doing it. I don't know. <laughs> Well, because Mark Cuban's thinking uh, yeah. <laughs> I think I'd rather have you than there, Sally, than him. Uh, and I know him very well. Um, why don't you think that? Why, you know, we're talking about women running in this election. We've got Stacey yeah. Abrams in Georgia. I'm yeah. assuming you're you Yeah, back supporting Stacey. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Oprah gave an amazing, as usual. I mean, only Oprah could end up making President Obama be the second story. Because right. President Obama is coming to Atlanta yeah. tomorrow to yeah. campaign for Stacey yeah. Abrams. Yeah. Do you think, do you, do you, does she have a pretty good chance or what? You know, the polls show it neck and neck right now, 48-48, which right. is remarkable because look, Georgia is a red state. Mm -hmm. So for the polls to have it at 48-48 is really amazing. Um, it's gotta get to 50 though. Georgia's one of those states where you have to have over 50 or it goes to a runoff. So they run against each other again? Again, yeah, there's a libertarian candidate that's, oh, okay. that's in there right now. All right, okay. So, so you're not thinking of running for office? No. Do you, do you think? Although my husband wants me to. So oh, that's, he does? He always says, every time I get asked this question, he says, just leave a little bit of wiggle room. Right. So if you, I know. <laughs> Why, uh, I, think you're, I think your husband is wise. Um, <laughs> But again, why? Because you don't think you'd be good at it, or you just don't want to be subject to 
to them. No, I, you, Only because there's a lot of women running, and you need to give them inspiration, that's all. No, and I think it's fantastic that, they, that they're running. Um, right. And I've been particularly you know, just amazed when I've been out speaking, all the particularly young women running all over the country. And it doesn't have to be for statewide office, whether it's like city council or county commission or whatever, or if they're not running, they're helping someone who's running or on a particular campaign or they're getting involved right. in issues. And you were talking about what people can do. There's a lot of stuff like that you right. can do to try to sort of define what the values ought to be for our country. I don't think that every single person has to be a candidate him or herself. I'm going to finish up talking to you a little bit about uh, Me Too and where that yeah. is. Um, how do you look at these cases? I, the Harvey Weinstein one is wobbling a little bit because of yeah. a bad detective um, in New York um, and stuff. How do you look at the whole panoply of that? Having, obviously, I'm assuming you've had your own share of issues like that, being demure. I think demure is probably not the worst, it's not the, the worst thing that you've heard. Um, how do you look at that right now from a legal point of view and, and, and in getting women to positions of power so things like that don't happen? Yeah, you know, it's, You'd think we'd be past this by yeah. now, wouldn't you? I mean, yeah. God, I think back to the, you know, I think they'd appreciate a more Jimmer woman, although I would consider that harassment. That's mm -hmm. more just, just annoying just as an hell. Asshole. But, um, yeah. Just an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> um, you'd think we'd be past this stuff, but yet in the last year, I've had so many conversations with other women, particularly sort of my contemporaries, who've told me stories, if not an out-and-out -out sexual assault, some other indignity that they suffered at some point in their career um, and sort of felt like they just had to silently suck it up and take it. And frankly, back in the day, other women were part of the problem mm -hmm. because, you know, I remember back when I first started practicing law, there were not many women in positions of authority in the legal profession. Mm -hmm. And I think there was sort of a feeling of, look, if you're going to make it here in this man's world, you kind of have to be one of the boys, and you just don't make a big stink about stuff like that. And mm -hmm. so, shamefully, I think particularly a lot of women back at that time were not nearly as supportive of other women as, as they should have been then. I think that's changing now, and you sure have seen in the last year, that just women just aren't going to take this stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. I have just flat had it. So give a few tips, and then we'll ask some questions of what you think are the critical parts that have helped you. You know, one of the things we just had a thing of like having a posse, like I, I'm myself forming a militia Etheridge, um, <laughs> which is uh -huh. lesbians with guns. Be yeah. scared, be uh -huh. very scared. Uh -huh. um, you know, what, do you, what are your, your things, the advice you would give to people? Uh, and with respect to the Me Too movement? No, in general, general. in general. Oh, oh God. Um, well, in this, and here, there's another thing, and you face those things. I think, there, I think that the Me Too movement, like what has been going on is like a tax that women pay, like or an extra burden they have to deal with in becoming successful. Yeah, I think it is. And I think that, that particularly for those of us that are you know, a little older now, we have a responsibility to do more to be protecting younger women. When I say protecting, I don't mean as in shielding, I mean as in, I hate the word empowering because I just think it's so overused, but mm -hmm. it's, it seems to apply here, but empowering younger women to know that they really don't need to be fitting into somebody else's idea mm -hmm. of how they should behave or who they should be. You know, I remember when I was coming along, it, you know, I was, women really tried to carefully calibrate sort of their, their image. You didn't want to be too aggressive, too like assertive, or it would be too much, but yet you didn't, want to, you, you didn't want to be the wallflower. Either you were constantly having to sort of calibrate just the right level of aggressiveness. Mm -hmm. Hopefully that's over now, that mm -hmm. women can feel comfortable. If you are sort of the hard-charging one, you can feel really comfortable to be that and not have to, to try to fit into somebody else's view, but that, that's a different thing than it was back in the day. So what is your, what inspires you? Oh, um, you know what, I'm as I said, I spent that year um, at Georgetown, and I was doing a lot of speaking at colleges and universities, and it actually goes back to the day of the Women's March, 
which I couldn't participate in. I was acting AG at the time. So, yeah. you know, it was kind of You wanted to, right? I You're, did. Actually, yeah. I was at the Whole Foods that afternoon yeah. when it was over in DC and freezing cold that day. And all these young women are just pouring into the grocery store because the um, metro was overflowing there. And, you know, they had the signs and the hats and the whole thing. And, you know, I'm there with my security detail and I just kind of tell them, just, <laughs> you know, I'm going to stand over here for a guy. I just kind of wanted to watch for mm -hmm. a while. And there were all these young women who were totally comfortable in their own skin. Mm -hmm. I mean, they knew who they were. They knew what they believed in. They weren't the least bit hesitant to, to say it out loud. And, you know, for the last year and a half or so that I've been speaking at colleges or universities or other places, I'm inspired by not just those women that were at the march, but the young women who come up to me and tell me that, you know, they had never thought about public service before. Mm -hmm. They had planned on going into business or into that, but they really feel a, a calling now to want to be part of defining our country, not to leave that to our elected officials that we have now, but to be part of that. That's really inspiring mm -hmm. to me that in the midst of all of this right now in our country, that the silver lining out mm -hmm. of all of that is that the 20-somethings that in the past might have been very sort of self-focused are, 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 are much more focused on our world and our country and something outside themselves, much more than I was, for example, at that right, age. Last question. Then and we'll I'm sorry, I, I get That's okay. much no, too long great. an answer. Um, if you had to pick one characteristic of yours that you think is, has been critical to your success, I'll start, me, obnoxiousness. Go ahead. Um, <laughs> You're um, not obnoxious, I see that. Um, persistence. Persistence. As um, in still she? Oh, no, in fact, yeah. God, I wish I hadn't picked that word because of that. She, nevertheless, she pers I'm pretty damn dogged. I mean, once I... Persistence. Yeah, yeah. That's, I'm trying to think of another word so right. I won't be sort of glomming onto that right now. But <laughs> Sorry, right. she'll um, share it with you. Grit. Grit's a good one. That's, that's a good word, yeah. yeah. But yeah. that sort of always, from the time that I can remember from law school all the way through, I guess if, if there's been one thing that probably has been contributed to whatever success I've had, that would be it. We're going to take another short break now. We'll return to my interview with Sally Yates in a minute. And by the way, I am a super fan. All right. Questions from the audience? We have a, a thing going around. Ah, oh, Malin. Fantastic. This is Malin. Sally, what can you share with us? I mean, it also feels like a little bit of ancient history now with the Kavanaugh and the Supreme Court hearings, but... No. Um, no. Yes. I'm I sorry. Is that a bad yeah. way to end the afternoon? Uh, yeah. Is there something you can say to us about this? <laughs> is there something I can say what? The Kavanaugh hearings and the... Is there something you can say to us about the Kavanaugh hearings that have nothing to do with beer? That's going to make you feel... Something I could better. say that would make you feel better? Yeah. Um, or just, a, just a, a commentary, or maybe it's just cathartic. I don't know. Um, I don't think I have anything that'll make you feel better. I mean, you know, I think out of that whole... Well, one thing that'll make you feel better. How about Dr. Ford? Yeah. I mean, you want to talk about, I mean, I watched, I mean, all of us, I would imagine, watched her testimony. And look, I've, I've testified before Senate hearings before, but that was part of my job to do that. Mm -hmm. This was not her job. She did not have to do that. And I watched her go in with just remarkable dignity and grit and courage and I can't help but believe that putting aside sort of the results of all of that, that that had to have inspired other women to, mm -hmm. to also find the courage within themselves. And I juxtaposed that um, against, to me, the lowest moment of the whole thing, and there were a lot of low moments, um, of when the president at that rally was mocking Dr. Ford and this woman, whom he, he himself before had said was credible and compelling, but he had decided that politically he needed to run over her. Mm -hmm. And so he just hit the gas, and I will never forget that crowd there in the rally laughing at her expense and thinking back to her testimony when she talked about the thing that stuck with laughing. her was that laughter at her expense. And there they were laughing at her again. And to me, that was the lowest moment of the whole thing. 
Well, gosh, Sally. So sorry. All right, so let's think of a higher moment. Yeah. <laughs> well, on that cheerful note. I know. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, well, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is still really healthy. That's yeah. my yes. over here. Yeah. Question here. So uh, she can I, plank longer than I can. She can so. plank. She's a planker. Yeah. Well preserved. Uh, so um, I started out my career as a lawyer too, so I may be biased, but I wanted to get some suggestions from you, perhaps, on what we can do to support the rule of law. Yeah. I think one of the things we think about it. You know, we think about it as this thing that affects civil society and all of that, but as venture capitalists and people that rely on our business infrastructure really staying very much um, constant, uh, the rule of law is of utmost importance to us. So have you given any thought to what you might suggest for ordinary people who are going about their business lives? Mm -hmm. uh, what can we do to reinforce and support the importance of the rule of law in our country? Yeah, you know, I've been asked that, and I, I still don't have a great answer to that question um, because it's really hard in, in sort of your day-to-day -day lives to be able to have the impact on that. Um, when I was at Georgetown, I put together this um, convening of people, 50% Republicans and 50% Democrats, um, where we brought in people to, you know, emphasize the importance of this issue and to emphasize the nonpartisan nature of it. And, in, and through that, I mean, one thing that came out is that I know it sounds kind of silly, like the phone calls and letters and all that your elected representatives get um, about this being something that's important to them. One of the biggest problems we have right now is the lack of a check mm -hmm. um, on the executive. I just took your picture. Oh, were you? Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I'm talking with my hands Keep on. Keep going. So that's a, it's the lack of a check that we have on the executive. And so, it, you know, I'm not suggesting to you that all of a sudden this is going to make all the difference in the world. but. I think our elected representatives need to know how unacceptable that is to us. So whether right. it's in town halls or letters or calls or you know, talking with other business executives, what, what we don't want to do is lose our sense of ourselves um, to where we're, we're just, yeah, I mean, we're just so they do, they do everything to get elected. If you stop them or get in their way, that's when they react. Yeah, and if they know everything. this matters, if they feel like they're at risk, if they do, don't do something to push back on this, I think that's the only thing that really motivates. And vote hard. Vote oh hard. gosh, and vote. Vote hard. Yeah. Vote hard. Vote. All right, another question? We had one more. Where was it? Over here? Hi, so I want to get back to... Oh, hey. The, hi. How are you doing? <laughs> Uh, to the election, and I would love to hear, you've been out talking around the country, um, I'd love to hear what you think it will take to beat Donald Trump in 20. So what kind of candidate, let's, let's leave Sally Yates aside for a minute, uh, but what kind of candidate do you think uh, will be the best um, case to raise against him? Look, I don't claim any particular insight into the, in the political world. I mean, that's really not been my world. I've you know, been a prosecutor all this time, so. So speculate. So, okay, so speculate. <laughs> um, I think you need sort of the antidote to Donald Trump. Um, I think it's gotta be somebody who appeals to our better angels, to our best instincts, to the, and I know all of this sounds kind of trite, to the unifying values of our country. Um, you know, right now we have somebody who is appealing to absolutely the darkest, fearful instincts in people. Um, and to me, for the sharpest contrast, again, it's not on any particular policy issue because people of goodwill can have, you know, genuinely different views on that kind of stuff. But it's about a fundamental question of who we are as a country and how we, you know, treat immigrants and how we treat each other and the rule of law and do we respect a free press and all those sort of basic core founding principles that haven't really been in danger in the past but actually are now. I think you need somebody who is the embodiment of that, who can articulate that and um, who also isn't going to be so stage managed so that everything seems poll tested because I also happen to believe that people vote for somebody they trust. They may not agree with them on every issue, but they sort of decide whether they trust that person to be making decisions on their behalf. And so, to me, so it's got to be somebody any, who... Any, so far, it's just Oprah right now that you're talking about. Yeah. But go ahead. Who else? Yeah, Oprah was amazing. Actually, I know. Actually, wasn't she talking about Stacey Abrams? Yeah. I know. She's yeah. got to stop this. Yeah. She needs to run. 
or something. Anybody. So I'm Oprah not sure Ann. who that's going to be. I mean, I haven't even Kamala. been focusing on candidates so much yet until you want to inspire you. Because I'm thinking, you know, look, Barack Obama hadn't really sort that's of true. emerged at this point. That's yet. right. That's a fair point. So we yeah. don't really know who's out there to some person. At this point. Some person. All right. Uh, last question. Very last, right here. Over here. Go ahead. Hi. Hey. Thank you for all that you've done, first of all, and thanks for coming in to speak. It's very inspiring. Just switching topics a little bit towards technology, we're all venture capitalists in the room, and we are um, chatting with founders who really have to think about this question of data privacy. Um, you've obviously seen really uh, prominent people from the tech world trying to explain how uh, technology works and how we deal with privacy. So I'm just curious if you have any insight into how the DOJ is thinking about um, either chatting with founders or tech companies or even um, prosecuting them down the line. Just what, does, what will the world look like um, from a legal perspective and how should we be thinking about guiding our founders going forward? Yeah, you know, I don't think any of us know what the world is going to look like from a legal perspective, like two, three, five years from now. I think one thing we do know is that I think it's going to look different than it does right now. Because I do sort of feel like we're, we're at a juncture where, and I couldn't begin to tell you exactly what form this is going to take, but there's going to have to be some type of regulation that addresses some of that. Um, were you thinking of that at the time? Were you starting to look at those things? Yeah, oh, we absolutely were. And, you know, the problem is, though, is that, you know, all of these issues are like supercharged issues in Congress. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's not even like that it breaks down on a Republican-Democrat thing. It just, just breaks down. Mm -hmm. And candidly, they don't really have the expertise. Nor no, am I candidly, that I have it. Yeah. candidly, we saw it on display. I mean, yeah. my... Yeah. my a four-year-old has a better sense of tech than they do, but go ahead. Right, so those hearings are really not the best vehicle right. for trying to craft important privacy legislation or otherwise. Now, they have staff people right. who, who certainly know that area. Better, so a, a national privacy bill, Yeah, you example. know, I don't know that that's going to happen. one in California. They, you know, we've got, I mean, I don't think that having piecemeal privacy laws is probably the best idea right. here. And I know some tech companies are pushing for a federal privacy law. Mm -hmm. Exactly what form that takes and whether or not you can, you know, Congress will get to the point in the next, you know, year or two to be able to do that, I'm not sure. And but related, obviously, Justice Barr was so famous for the Microsoft trial. Was there antitrust considerations going on among <laughs> these big tech companies? Yeah, considerations, yeah. I mean, I can't talk about, right. you know, the specific. How do you look at it from the outside now? It, you know, I think that certainly, look, there are all sorts of issues. I mean, it's, it's sort of like the law school exam question mm -hmm. in, in terms of like every issue you can imagine is sort of tied up in the tech world right now from mm -hmm. antitrust to privacy to, you know, all of those issues. It's one big cabal now and sort of figuring out how smaller tech companies compete mm -hmm. um, when the larger companies have... So um, much dominance. Yeah, exactly. Um, and... I don't have all the answers to that. I think there are, certainly are people who are working on that, but whether that actually turns into anything or not is hard to know, or at least in the short term. I think it's going to have to, though, over some period of years because yeah. we'll just keep lurching. Yeah, regulation is coming that. for sure. Some yeah. sort of something, something. some action, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. All right, last question, Sally. It's what's your current mood? What's my current mood? Yeah, what is it? I don't even know I'm what pissed. that question is. What is yours? What is yours? <laughs> Current move. Oh, move. I think you said current move. I thought, move. oh, God. Oh, you wanted, you like, this dance. is some kind of California question that I don't even know what this means. <laughs> no, actually, actually, it is actually a word. I, some millennial was like to me recently, and they're like, what's your day move? I'm like, what? Uh -oh. They were, and it's, it's what are you doing today? And I was like, oh, um, I'm sleeping. <laughs> it's my day move. Um, oh, God, I'm going to end on a downer. Um, All right. I'm kind of anxious right now, um, both in terms of the midterms and what that means in terms of whether we actually are going to begin to have the check that we need, whether all these people, um, a little nervous about whether all these people who were writing and protesting and marching and all of that, are they actually going to vote? Um, and so I'm hopeful in that regard. So I guess I'm, I'm anxious and hopeful at the same time, if that can be kind of a weird cabal there. No, that's how everybody is. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Sally. Thanks. Thank you. 
Thanks again to Sally Yates for joining me on stage and to the organizers of the All Rays Summit for letting us share the interview with you. And special thanks to Jeremy Dalmas for recording the interview. Thanks to you all for listening. You can find more episodes of Recode Decode on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please tell a friend about the show. Now that you're done with this, go check out our other podcasts, Recode Media and Pivot. You can find those shows wherever you found this one. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. And thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then.